All right, welcome everyone back to another episode of the Rehumanized podcast. Uh, I'm Emiliano. I'm Herb. Today on the podcast, we are joined by George White. He is one of the co-founders of Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing. They are a death penalty abolitionist organization who I have been very proud to work with over the years. Um, I'll let him tell more about uh, exactly what they do and, and tell his story, but we are having him on because he was slated to be a speaker at the 2022 Rehumanized Conference. Um, but because of COVID, we have remained online. And with online virtual conferences comes inevitable uh, last minute tech issues. And so George was not actually able to join us on the screen. Uh, and so we wanted to have him on the podcast basically to talk about what he was going to talk about at the conference, which is just his story and his um, position on the death penalty as someone who is very close to the issue, has been affected by um, the issue of the death penalty in more ways than one. And so I'm excited to have him on uh, to talk a little bit about his story and his work. If you did not attend the Rehumanized Conference, you should have come next year. But um, for those speakers who didn't make it, and maybe some of the others, um, we are definitely going to have them on the podcast in the in the near future before before the next Rehumanized Conference, at least. Um, I also know that Maria is in the process of uploading a couple, a select amount of the uh, keynote panels from the conference um, onto the podcast so that you can just listen to them here. Um, I think that she might be adding yours to Emiliano. Uh, Emiliano was uh, kind enough to join us as a speaker at the Rehumanized Conference, if you missed it. Um, so that's yet another reason to attend the Rehumanized Conference if you enjoy the Rehumanized podcast. Because I am obviously there all day, but this year we also had Emiliano. And if you're if you just listen to the podcast because you're a fan of Emiliano, you would love his session at the Rehumanized Conference. I do get told that I have a good radio podcast voice. I'm glad that we're having George on to speak on the death penalty um, from, you know, my standpoint in Mexico where the death penalty uh, is illegal and is lo lots of times blamed for that, that lack of death penalty uh, is blamed for the levels of violence that uh, we experience in Mexico. I just saw somebody on my Facebook be like, Hey, message me on Facebook because somebody stole my phone. Um, like the, the level of violence in Mexico um, by uh, just kind of random Mexican citizens is sometimes attributed to the fact that there is no death penalty in Mexico um, that's been something that's been in the Mexican constitution since the 1800s. Um, Mexico has not had a death penalty, um, as well as lots of other countries in Latin America. But I remember I was in an Uber, uh, a couple months ago and the guy was telling me that he was, uh, going to, uh, law school, to get his master's and that he was going to write his thesis on 
um, why Mexico needs to bring back the death penalty after like 150 years of not having it. And in like the half hour ride, I was like, no, here's all the reasons why that's wrong. And you should actually write it about the exact opposite thing um, uh, about how the U S is bad and um, uh, wrong in having the death penalty in the 21st century now. Um, uh, and so I think uh, George's story is really a, a powerful example um, as all of these examples are with uh, exoneration cases um, about how, how unjust and how uh, just arbitrary uh, and violent itself um, the death penalty is um, and just in general, the criminal justice system in the United States, especially compared to other countries. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I am proud to be reporting from a death penalty free country. Well, that's good. I mean, aren't I think most countries are death penalty free. The, the death penalty is one of those things that the United States remains in the in the minority of in terms of violence when it comes to like extremist late term abortion and killing people through capital punishment. Um, people here tend to think that this is normal um, when it's really not. It, most countries um, either have abolished the death penalty in law, like it's in the Constitution, like in Mexico, or it's just not at all carried out. Um, unlike here, where it's happening several times a month in many states. Uh, so with no further ado, let's hear from Georgetown. Welcome tonight to the podcast, uh, George White. Um, uh, welcome in, George. You want to tell us a little about yourself? Uh, we had invited you to the uh, Rehumanized Conference, and uh, because of technical issues, uh, you weren't able to uh, give your talk like you had wanted to. So we definitely wanted to give you the floor here to talk to little, talk to us a little bit more about. Uh, about the death penalty. Okay, well, it's it's my privilege to be here. Uh, my name is George White, and I presently call Northern Virginia home. Uh, I am one of the co-founders of the Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing. Uh, I once again am serving on the board. Uh, the uh, the journey is is was the inspiration of Bill Pelkey, uh, and uh, Bill and I became like brothers. He passed away two years ago, and we still miss him every day. Uh, the, the, the journey is murder victim family members. We're led by murder victim family members, and we're joined by others with stories to tell death row family members, family members of, of those executed, uh, exonerees, people that have been affected by the death penalty in one way or another. We offer ourselves individually and as an organization as a resource to other organizations 
in their efforts to end the death penalty. Uh, we found that the we're storytellers, stories we wish we didn't have to tell. But we found by offering these personal stories, it establishes credibility. People may continue to disagree with us, but they cannot dismiss the experience. So basically, that's... That's it. Yeah. yeah. I have been honored to work with Journey of Hope um, several times, uh, often at the annual uh, fast and vigil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to abolish the death penalty. Um, and so while there, I've gotten to hear from a lot of different board members and people involved in Journey of Hope. And I think it is just I, one of, I think, the most important organizations talking about the death penalty right now. I think there's a lot of important organizations that I'm happy to work with. Um, but in terms of story, I think that Journey of Hope is really um, the organization that I come back to mm-hmm. when trying to talk about the death penalty in a human-centered way. Because I think that as abolitionists, it can be easy to talk about the practical reasons to abolish the death penalty. It's costly. It's ineffective. Um, lots of lots of good reasons. Um, right. but I think the reasons really most striking are are the human reasons and i appreciate all of the people who are willing to tell um what is often difficult and traumatic stories in order to um to advance this cause and so i'm grateful for your work and i'm happy to provide a platform to journey of hope speakers whenever i get the opportunity so that's why that's why we invited you here today um and I would love for you to just share as much of your story as you are willing to for the Rehumanized podcast audience, uh, because I think it's it's really moving and really important to continue to tell these stories. Okay. Well, uh, you're right. It is uh, you know, part of the story is is from the most difficult moments of my life, uh, but there is some. Uh, healing that comes with telling the story also. So having said that, I'll I'll get started. In February 27th, 1985, I was living my little piece of the American dream in Enterprise, Alabama. I was vice president and general manager of an independent chain of building supply stores. We were headquartered there in Enterprise. Enterprise was a small city of about 20,000. I was married, my wife, Charlene, I called her Char. She and I had two small children. Our son, Tom, was 12, and daughter, Christy, five. Uh, It was a Wednesday. I had just come in from work, and Char and I had planned to go out to dinner and a movie that night because the kids were going to spend the night with their grandmother. And the phone rang. I answered the phone. There was a man on the other end. He apologized for calling me at the house but said he had kind of an emergency situation. It had a circuit breaker go out uh, that was hooked up to his freezer. Was there any way I could help him out? And I I probably mumbled under my breath, but then I said, well, sure. Tell you what, I'll meet you at the store in 15 or 20 minutes. When I hung up the phone, I told Char, and she said, well, why don't I go out with you? Then maybe you won't get held up too long, and you know, maybe we can make the Uh, dinner in the seven o'clock movie. She knew me well. We got, we went out, we got to the store. We went on inside. There wasn't anybody there yet. 
We were there maybe five minutes when there was a knock at the door and went to the door expecting a grateful customer. Instead, we were confronted by a man with a gun. We cooperated. I opened the safe. I gave him what was there. I gave him my wallet. Char gave him her purse. And then he told us to go out there, and he gestured out to the showroom area where the cash registers were. Of course, I knew there wasn't money in the registers, but he had the gun. As we started out of the office area, Shaw was beside me. He was a little bit behind. And as we approached the door, I stepped forward to push it and open it. Uh, and I turned to look to see which way he wanted us to go. And as Shaw stepped beside me, she kind of stumbled. And the first shot was fired. He, was fire, he fired the gun six times. Shar was hit twice. I was hit three times and one missed. My next conscious thought, I was lying on the floor. It was quiet. He was gone. And I saw Shar lying face down in a pool of blood, a large pool of blood. I got to my feet. I got to a phone. I called for help. And then Shar coughed and I went to her. There was a Coke machine there. I grabbed some plastic off the top of the Coke machine and I got on the floor beside her and I lifted her head. I retreat from the next image that will forevermore be seared into my memory as I looked into the shattered remains of her beautiful face. I looked into the aftermath of the insanity and horror of murder. As I, I started to try to stop the bleeding, uh, again, I, I looked into the shattered remains uh, of her face. And I cursed my God. I don't know if my scream was out loud or not. Char died. Obviously, I lived. I had been struck three times in the, in the left arm, the right leg, and in the abdomen area. Obviously, I lived. The police arrives. Uh, it's all kind of a blur. Uh, Char was declared dead on arrival at the hospital. Uh, and again, obviously I lived. For my family and I, that was just the beginning of the nightmare. Sixteen months later, I was indicted, arrested, and charged with the capital murder of my wife. I couldn't believe it. I mean, intellectually, I knew it was going on, but emotionally, I still can't quite get a wrap around that. I mean, even to this day, I don't know everything that happened that night, but I always knew what did not. Sometimes I, 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 I have to pause a little bit. I, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, much time as you I appreciate that. Um, 
for me, it was the most horrible experience of my life. Uh, I, I know what hatred is. I hated the man that murdered my wife. I couldn't put a face to him. He had had a mask on. But I, I, I truly know what hatred is. But it wasn't hatred that sustained me over those years. It was love. It was a love of family, some friends, far fewer than I once thought I had, and the love of my children. You see, again, I, I, 16 months after Shar and I were shot, I, I was arrested and charged with her capital murder. And I uh, tried to understand what was going on, but I really couldn't. Uh, I had a lawyer that, that I had a friendly business relationship with uh, that I, uh, I hired him to defend me. I could only free up a dollar. They had frozen my assets. They're not supposed to do that. But by the time that legal question got cleared up, I was broke in so many ways. Uh, his name was Paul Young, country lawyer. Alabama didn't have public defenders, uh, court appointed. And Paul got himself appointed to represent me. It was 14 months we went to trial. I was still clinging to what I'd been brought up to believe that once we got to trial, the truth would out and justice, whatever that is, would prevail. I knew it couldn't be made right, but I thought would be brought back into some kind of balance. And I was wrong. Following a two-week trial, during which the state of Alabama asked a jury to condemn me to death, it was a death penalty trial, I was convicted. However, I was lucky. I didn't get a death sentence. I received a sentence of life, which was another way of dying day by day in my estimation. But that's another story. I went to prison, and I was incarcerated for two years, 103 days. And then on the first appeal, a unanimous decision by the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, my conviction was set aside. But please understand, at that point, it had nothing to do with the fact of my innocence. It was because I'd received an unfair trial. I was released pending further proceedings. My baby sister and her husband I uh, took out a third mortgage and, and posted my bond. And by the way, they had taken my children in uh, and given them a home and, and uh, some stability and what have you. And, and my, my baby sister held the fabric of family together. Uh, and they ended up being 400 miles away down in, in central Florida. Uh, but the kids were in a safe environment and a loving home. And no matter how bad it got for me, and it did, I couldn't imagine how it was for my children, for Tom and for Christy. They had lost their mother. Then they had the state of Alabama say, your daddy did it. And their response, and this is to no way minimize their pain, their anger, 
their hurt, their response was to keep on loving me. Sometimes hating is easy. Sometimes it's just loving stuff that's hard. But it was so much attributed to the love of my children that I was able to hold on. I was released pending further proceedings. Paul still stuck by me. We thought, okay, now now we'll fight to get a fair trial. But it didn't happen. Over the next more than three years, there were 16 sessions of criminal court in Coffee County, Alabama. And at each of those sessions, we would appear and announce present, ready to proceed when they would call out the state of Alabama versus George William White. And by the way, that's a whole lot of folks lined up against you. We would announce present, ready to proceed. The state would say nothing. The trial court would order it continued beyond that term of court over our objection. It, 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 that went on for more than three years. Finally, it took us going all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. We went up and what they call a writ of mandamus. He asked a higher court to order the lower court to do what they're supposed to do under the law. We went up on a speedy trial issue. What the heck? Finally, on March 31st, 1992, more than seven years from the night Shaw and I were shot, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that I'd been denied a speedy trial. Their remedy was ordering the court to take me to trial within the next 30 days. Now, that doesn't make much sense, but that's what we were after. So trial was set for the end of April, but it didn't happen. See, over those years and through the efforts of Paul and others, we tracked a lot of things, and we ended up uncovering evidence 104 separate items of evidence from various agencies throughout the state of Alabama that had been hidden from us for more than seven years. Evidence that proved my innocence, not only beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond any doubt. We gathered that, and we made a strategic decision, rather than wait until trial, that we'd go and confront the district attorney with it. So Paul and I, four men carrying boxes, walked into the DA's office, walked in. He was seated behind his desk. He looked up and kind of a shocked look at his face that here we were. And we threw some file folders on his desk. He turned white. And then as he opened the folder and looked at the first thing on top, he turned bright red. And he looked up and he kind of stuttered and he told Paul, well, I've never seen this. And Paul said, Joel, I don't care what you say anymore. And then he used a couple of words that I, I, I won't repeat because there may be some kids listening. He says, it doesn't matter. He said, you've got 24 hours. This is over. So we left the stuff and we walked out and we got out on, on the steps and I turned and looked at him. I said, when did we get that kind of power? He kind of smiled. He said, what? I said, 
that we could tell them it's over. He said, let's see what happens tomorrow. Again, it had been more than seven years now. Next morning at five after nine, got a call from the judge's bailiff and said, Mr. Young, need you and Mr. White over here as soon as you can get here. We went across the street. We went in. The judge and the DA came out from his chambers in back. DA came over and handed us two pieces of paper stapled together and looked down at it. It was a motion to dismiss. The state moved that all charges against me be dismissed. The judge so ruled. Uh, it was dismissed with prejudice. That's one of them 75 cent legal terms, meaning that it could never be raised against me before. They, uh, again, the, the court took notice that the state had done wrong. Of course, they weren't held liable, but that's another story. We, we exited the courtroom. We were met by the media on the steps, and they stuck their microphones into the face of Mr. Falmer, and they said, well, what does this mean? What happens now? His response was, and I quote, we're reopening the investigation. We're looking for the man who did it. I have no further comment, and he walked away. That was the last official statement by the state of Alabama in that matter. The man that murdered my wife has never been held accountable, probably never will be now, although we pushed for years trying to get police to follow up on things that we had uncovered, but people tend not to work too hard to go back and prove themselves wrong, especially when there's culpability in what came to pass. And my family and I struggle with that. We don't want what happened to us to happen to anyone else, but we've had to accept that at least in this lifetime, that man may never be held accountable. Now, where was George White in all of this in my heart and in my head? Whew. Again, like I said earlier, I, I know what hatred is now. I truly do. And I understand the, the I wanted that man held accountable. I wanted him dead. I truly supported the death penalty for a long time. I understand those feelings. But I wasn't screaming from my head. I was screaming from my broken heart. And that's unfortunately how victims' families are treated so often. Instead of people listening to us and letting us scream or letting us cry or letting us laugh or letting us heal, a lot of people will, will affirm the hatred. So, yeah, he needs to fry. He needs to, needs to be executed. And I know that was said to me when I was in the hospital, still in the hospital. And my response was, yes. But again, I wasn't screaming with my head. For years, I hated God. I'd been raised to believe in a loving God. But I couldn't put a face on the man that murdered my wife 
but I could blame God, and I did. Uh, for years, I had a love-hate relationship with my God. I hated him. But as I came to understand, he kept on loving me. And that love was manifested through people and through my children. I've come a long and somewhat torturous path to where I stand today. Uh, when it was all over, I had a lot of healing I had to do. And part of my healing, I had come to understand I didn't want that man killed anymore. Of course, I wanted him held responsible. Of course. But we don't have to execute someone to hold them responsible. And I truly believe that. And I also know, I, I've come to know uh, well, more than 100 uh, people who have been exonerated, wrongfully convicted. I've spoken places with them and, and what have you. And, you know, but for the grace of God, I could have gotten the death penalty. Uh, the reason I didn't, by the way, as we much later came to find out, I had an all-white jury. And one of the jurors ran into him on the street when it was all over with. And I went up to him, and he recognized me, and he said, Mr. White, I'm so sorry that we bought into what the prosecution said. I said, well, I understand. I said, but let me ask you, why didn't you go for the kill? The death penalty was on the table. Why didn't you? And he kind of shuffled his feet, and he said, well, he said, in all honesty, you look too much like we did. So if the color of my skin had been a little bit darker, folks, and if the state of Alabama had its way, I'd be a dead man today. And that ain't right. I mean, please understand, I'm grateful. But that ain't right. So, again, I, I've come a long way to where I now absolutely oppose the death penalty in every circumstance and for every reason. It wasn't through my strength, but my healing, and I'm still healing. I still have angry days at times. I'm entitled to those. Uh, I met Bill Pelkey on the first journey of hope that was held in Indiana in 1993. Uh, uh, I was invited to come to this thing, and that was the first journey that was held. And at that time, it was a project of the Murder Victim Families for Reconciliation. So I and my son, Tom, who was home for college for the summer, he came with me, and we went for 17 days. And that's when I came to find another family. Folks that we could finish sentences for each other. Uh, again, we're storytellers. Uh, but a few years later, uh, uh, Murder Victim Families for Reconciliation wanted to focus on some other areas, so Bill got five of us together, and we we formed the Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing, uh, and we we try to do at least one 17-day event a year. Of course, the last couple of years has been because of the pandemic and what have you. Uh, but then we also do shorter 
trips, uh, you know, wherever two or more, uh, and, uh, again, we offer ourselves individually and as an organization, uh, to help in the public education efforts. Uh, and as you said earlier, Herb, the, 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 uh, there's power in these stories. It's not about us as individuals. It's about the power of those stories. And people can relate to the fact that we're human beings. We're, we're, we're flesh and blood. Uh, we're certainly not a bunch of saints. <laughs> I'm certainly not. Uh, I'm a man. Uh, I've done good things. I've done not so good things. Uh, but I believe that Shar's life has a whole lot more meaning than just being a murder victim. Shar uh, loved life. And my family and I believe that that should be her legacy. Bless your hearts. Amen. Well, thank you, George. I am just always so grateful. I've heard your story probably like 15 times now. <laughs> um, <your> heart. <laughs> uh, and I am, I feel I'm always moved by it. I, I've heard, you know, in this work, lots of different stories about lots of different issues and lots of different contexts. And there's some that, you know, it's like, I know it, I know it. Mm -hmm. I don't need to hear it. But yours, I really, I'm moved by every time. Uh -huh. um, and I think that uh, particularly the work of journey, journey of hope, um, is so moving because like you said it's focused on healing it's easy to be angry um and it can be very difficult to turn that anger into something that is healthier and more productive um and can actually bring good into the world and i think that's what you're doing i think that's what all of the storytellers um in this movement are doing and i just I'm so grateful for it. Emiliano, I think this is the first time you've heard George's story, um, at least from his own mouth. Uh, do you have any any reaction you'd like to share? Yeah, I wonder, uh, in your interactions with other people who have uh, gone through similar, similar horrible events, um, what is it ultimately that convinces people to forgive or at least choose mercy if not forgiveness um for the people who uh, so violently and drastically hurt them or their family members uh what what is it that puts them on that path well you know not not everyone uh heals enough to let go of the anger and the bitterness and what have you. But we, o we open the door to dialogue. I, I, we're honest. We all try to be very honest. Uh, uh, you know, you know, you know so, some, of, some of us, uh, you know, our faith was enough that, that we didn't immediately call for vengeance and what have you. But some of us did. And, uh, you know, I can speak from that perspective. You know, 
Well, you know, I kind of skipped through it because there's a lot to be said over a short period of time. But, uh, uh, you know, I have spoken on the death penalty now for uh, 30 years, I guess. And, uh, you know, especially in the early years, I, you know, uh, uh, when, when I was doing work in the courts, uh, I was a mitigation specialist for several years uh, uh, on the job training. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, you know, I, I spoke to the classes, on, you know, on my experiences. Uh, and uh, before the class knew where I was coming from, you know, invariably, I'd be met with, well, you'd feel differently if it happened to someone that you loved. And I have a response for that. You're right. I did feel differently when my wife was murdered. Can we talk about it? And I, I think leading people down that path, and especially other murder victim family members who were caught where I was once caught, and I've run up against them over the years, but invariably we'll start dialoguing. And we'll offer... We're farther along healing. Maybe you won't want to try for that. Because that's, I don't, I hate being put into, and I reject being put into a situation of debating a murder victim family member about the death penalty. No, no, no. We're not on different sides. We simply disagree on the solution to ending our pain. And if you can get the dialogue into that, and you can't always, but I, 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 I'm blessed to have seen so many people change over the years, and especially allowing for the passage of time. Well, when the when the feeling is raw and what have you, no. But then those of us that buy into the damnable lie that the death penalty is going to somehow heal the wounds of our loss? No. That's a damnable lie. And when you can pe get people away from the feeling to the thinking, then progress can be made. And I think that's part of what we help bridge in, in this, you know, we don't want any more people <laughs> with the experiences that we have, but okay, let's use them. Let's let them bridge the feelings and get to the dialogue. Yeah. I think you have a, a, well, not unique, I'm sure, lots of times when there is a murder victim, the first person who is under investigation lots of times is the spouse or a loved sure. one. Uh, but you've been on both sides of the story and that's what really surprises me about your story um is that turn where uh the people who when we're listening to your story we're expecting you know you to be the 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 vengeful and wronged husband um but then you end up being the the victim of the state's persecution as well um what what did that experience uh how did that experience influence 
uh, your views on the death penalty as well being kind of on the other side of on the other side of the noose, really? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, you know, of course, uh, for several years, I, 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 I was. I couldn't find a reason for me being in the situation that I was in. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, I still don't know everything that happened that night. And, and you know, we don't we don't keep a camera in our heads. Uh, uh, you know, it's all affected by the by the experience. And and uh, uh, but I always knew what did not happen. And I think that was part of my salvation: the fact that I knew it wasn't me. Now, uh, I don't know a whole lot of things absolutely, but I absolutely know an innocent man or woman can be convicted of something they didn't do in this country. I know that one. It happened to me. And but for the grace of God, I could have been executed for it. Now, knowing that and recognizing that, it took me several years to come to, whoa, uh, you know, w- w- when you're under the gun, you're you're merely trying to survive. But you know, uh, when it was legally over with for me, I had a whole lot of healing I had to do. I had to confront these feelings, and for me, they were very powerful feelings. Uh, and, and and I met other people like Bill Pelkey, like Marietta Yeager, like Suzanne Bosler. I can I can go down dozens of people that uh, have experienced these horrible losses, yet choose a better way, and it it's, it comes down to a choice. I'm not going to hate anymore. Now that doesn't mean that that uh, you just dismiss what happened. No, people need to be held accountable. That's for sure. But we can hold people accountable without engaging in the same behavior that we're condemning. Murder is wrong. Killing is wrong. We don't have to engage in that to keep society safe from people that would harm us. Anyway. No, thank you. Sure. Um, I. I have a question about your story. So I think I hear stories like yours. And so I, I think I know the answer to this, but it's clear that there was lots and lots of wrongdoing on the side of the, on the part of the state of Alabama. Is there any recourse for you or other um, men and women who have been put through the sort of compounded trauma of um, wrongful conviction and wrongful prosecution. Were you able to, you know, seek any sort of anything for what you went through? Every state is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when mine happened, uh, there were only 17 states at that time where anyone could get possibly some compensation or some uh, peace back. Alabama, no, uh, mm-hmm. none, zero. Uh, uh, the state laws are different. The immunity is different. 
uh, none of it's right. I mean, uh, there, I, I know five guys uh, that that were uh, convicted, sentenced to death in Alabama that are now free. None of them have received a penny uh, either. Uh, and that ain't right. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Who you you spent several years, which is horrific to think about, but there are people who spent decades yes. in prison before yes. yeah. exonerated, and that it is it's just it, I can't even conceptualize something like that. Spending decades in prison for a crime you didn't commit, often a crime that occurred against your loved one, like yeah. in your case, um, and when it's all said and done, you know, the state, oops, sorry, or not even sorry. They don't no. even have to apologize. They no. just say, no, no. fine. Um, it, it, it's really horrific to think about the the power that the state holds over us as people, that they can just take us out of our homes and our communities um, for for no good reason and for you know, wrongful, wrongful reasons. Um, and then there's nothing we can do about it as citizens. I think that when I hear about people who um, become exonerated, both from um, capital crimes where they were on death row, but also for people who are sentenced to life in prison for violent crimes and commit. I mean, this is, this happens every day. Um, and those are just the stories that we get to hear about because they were actually exonerated. There are plenty more people who were wrongfully convicted that no one's looking into the story. They don't have the money to hire a lawyer for an appeals process. Um, and so I really, when people are trusting of the justice system, I just really want to encourage them to listen to stories like yours and stories of um, people, especially you know, predominantly African American people who um, who are targeted in this way, uh, and you know, you might think, well, they they get it wrong sometimes, of course, but you know, it all works itself out. They don't actually execute an innocent person. Look at these exonerees, um, but we know that they do execute. They have, and they they will and continue that, to. Uh, absolutely, and for the people who do get exonerated, it's not like. It, the problem solved, they've now been out of community for this long. You know, they're perhaps the people in their life have moved on or died if they're in there for, for decades and they've missed, you know, the milestones of the outside world. And so I really think that when we listen to stories like this, we can't just say that's horrible that that happened. It needs to spur us into action um, and to really reconsider how we, how we view the justice system or um, the injustice system in this country. Now, I have testified in various states on, uh, on the problem of, of uh, uh, wrongful convictions and the fact that they're not compensated and what have you. I mean, I've worked on all kinds of issues over my lifetime now. Uh, uh, and of course I focused my efforts on education, public education, uh, uh, and using the vehicle of telling the stories. Uh, it, 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 it is wrong. I, I mean, we lost everything. Uh, uh, 
you know, I was financially, spiritually uh, bankrupt in so many ways. Uh, you know, I was fortunate, uh, more fortunate than so many people. I mean, you know, I, I had a college education. I, I was educated. Uh, you know, I had a value system and I had loving family support and what have you. But I was still broken when it was all over with. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I had to find my path uh, and and come through. And, and you know, uh, but there, there is so much that is wrong uh, uh, in the in the justice system. Uh, and I believe in holding people accountable. Not only the perpetrators, but the judges and the district attorneys and the law enforcement folks and whatever. Now, fortunately, I ran across some good some good law enforcement folks and some good lawyers and some good DAs. Not in my case. <laughs> uh, I ran across some that were weren't worth the powder to blow them to hell. Uh, uh, but but uh, I think that's why, why you know having stories to tell. We need to tell the stories, and, and that's why you know whenever I get invited to speak someplace, if I can find a way to get there, I'm going because uh, I believe in public education. Uh, and again, it's you know it's not about George; it's about George's story. Good Lord gave me some gifts as far as being able to communicate in a business way. Uh, well, this is a little bit different, but it's about communicating. Uh, and uh, uh, as long as I'm able to get up and go, I'm going to get up and go. Yeah, yeah I, I think as we're wrapping up, um, you mentioned that while you were going through this at, at the beginning when you were um, being held in prison and, and on trial, that it was love that got you through, um, mm -hmm. love for your wife and for your children and family on the outside. But I think it's obvious from listening to you speak that it's love that makes you stay in this work because you could have just packed up and said, okay, my case is over. I can, I can you know, go back into the, go back into the world, get a, get a job. Um, forget about all this and put it behind me as a traumatic episode in my life. But you didn't. You continued to um, to speak out and to educate, and I think that that is uh, impressive, um, and I'm grateful for it. And it, it's clear to me that it's because of the love that you have um, that you're able to continue to do this. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, uh, I I had a lot of people love me through this. A lot of people still do. But I mean, strangers, I mean, other prisoners, uh, 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 yeah, again, for a long time, I, I, I rejected the existence of God. I mean, uh, I, I, I guess I always believed there was a God, but I, I hated him for a long time. Uh, uh, and I, I came through this believing there is a God uh, uh, and that, that God loved me.
Okay. Uh, the fact that I made it through motivates me to keep on going. It really does. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share. And at any time, you can get a hold of me. I'm glad to help in any way I can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so hopefully much, I'll Serge. see you again sure. next year at the, the Fast and Vigil. Um, you've been there. Have you been there every year? You've been there every year. I've been there. Uh, I, no, I, of the we're, we're up to, what, 25 years. Uh, I, I've been there probably 20, 21 of them. Uh, I, I've missed okay. about four times, whatever. But, and since <laughs> I since I now live about 30 miles from D.C., uh, uh, I have no no excuse <laughs> to not show up. Uh, well, great. Well, so if our, if our listeners want to get to hear um, George's story again and get to ask him questions, I really encourage you to attend the fast and vigil and, and just get involved in the abolition movement. Generally, there's plenty of events. Um, Journey of Hope's website has information. You can find that um, abolitionist action committee as well for the fast and vigil. Um, there's other organizations that I can plug here, but sure. um, there's there's plenty of work to be done on this. Uh, and of course, you know, like me and Emiliano, you don't need uh, your own story um, or your own personal connection to the death penalty um, to care about this. You can work to, um, you know, empower the speakers that do have a connection and uh, give them a platform and amplify their voices. And you can learn to speak out yourself. So. I encourage you, if you listen to this episode, please do not despair and think that, oh, it's the whole the whole system's just rotten. I, I don't want to have to think about this. No, please, please use this as an opportunity to get involved, um, to to work towards either abolition or just healing in um, in our personal lives. Because sure. I think that um, you don't need you don't need the death penalty um, to face that to start thinking about healing when you've gone through trauma. Um, ideally, that wouldn't be on the table at all for anyone uh, going through anything close to what you had to experience. Um, but I think that you guys can be an excellent model for, for all of us as we deal with grief and trauma and um, as a model for healing. Emiliano, anything to add as we wrap up this episode with George? Yeah, thanks again, George, uh, for coming on. Uh, this is my first time hearing your story. Uh, and yeah, I think people should hear it. And not just you, but the hundreds of other people who also have had these horrible things happen to them and then are lots of times used as an example against their will for things to be done and violence to continue to be committed in their name. Right. Um, so I appreciate you a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it guys.